Section 9 of the Book of Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Anderson. The Book of Wales by Frank Evers Bedard. Chapter 4 The Position of Wales in the System and Their Classification. In order to pursue matters in logical order, we must go back. First of all, to the question raised before, why is a whale not a fish? For the sake of those who are not well versed in the facts of comparative anatomy, it may be convenient to state briefly a few main reasons for placing the whale among the mammalia, and not only not among the fish, but also in a position remote from all other groups of vertebrate animals, that is, the amphibia, reptiles, and birds. A whale is a hot-blooded creature, breathing by means of lungs, which lie in the interior of the body in a definitive chest cavity shut off from the rest of the cavity of the body, that which contains the intestines, liver, etc. By a largely mu muscular partition, the diaphragm, it has, frequently, vestiges of the hairs which cover the body of other mam mammals in the presence of a few scattered hairs in the neighborhood of the mouth. It brings forth its young alive and suckles them with milk, the bones of the skull are precisely those of other mammals, and only differ slightly in their relative arrangement. These characters are quite sufficient for the present purpose. Many might be added to them, of course. No creature which has these characteristics is anything but a mammal. One or two of them may be wanting in those lowest of the mammalian tribe. Ornithorhychus and the echinda, they do not bring forth their young alive, but lay eggs. Still, when born, the young echinda and platypus are nourished by milk. Fishes, a very few of them, may have what are believed to be the representatives of lungs, and with which, indeed, they actually breathe. But they have, also, gills, and the vast bulk have no breathing organs except these gills. Lungs are found higher in the series, but no diaphragm like this of whales until we get to mammals. But to go further than this, and to decide whereabouts in the long series of mammals the whale tribe should be intercalated, is a matter which is at present beyond our knowledge. We may, however, discuss the matter for a little in order to show the grounds of our ignorance. From the sketch which has just been given of the outward form and the internal structure of whales, it will be apparent that the nature of the medium in which they live has profoundly affected the characters of the different organs. There is positively no part of the body, with the exception perhaps of the brain and the stomach, and one or two other points to be re referred to later, that has not been evidently altered in some way, more or less, in different cases, to meet the changed conditions of life, as we believe them to have been. There is, therefore, obviously some difficulty in ascertaining, or endeavoring to ascertain, what are the real dif differential characters of the group. To separate, that is to say, characters due to the environment and those which have been inherited from the long-extinct terrestrial ancestor. The current definitions of the group Ceticiae are obliged to be found on these, as we must assume them to be recently acquired characteristics, to take one or two as examples. Professor Ziddle defines them in the following terms, naked, smooth skin, fish-like water-dwellers with cylindrical body head not separable from the body, nasal orifices on the upper side lying far back, interior limbs fin-like, hind limbs wanting, tail fin horizontal, 
milk glands abdominal in position. Messrs. Parker and Haswell use the following language. Aquatic urethra with large head, fish-like, fusiform body, devoid of hair covering, with the pectoral limbs paddle-like, the pelvic limbs absent, and with a horizontal caudal fin. A vertical dorsal fin is usually present. There is a long snout and two nostrils opened by two lateral external apertures, or a single medium one, situated in all recent forms far back towards the summit of the head. The cervical region of the spinal column is very short, and its vertebrate usually completely united together. Clavicles are absent. The humerus is freely movable at the shoulder, but all other articulations of the limbs are imperfect. The phalanges of the second and third digit always exceed in number the number three, normal in mammalia. The pelvis is represented by a pair of horizontal plated styliform, vestiges of the ischia. Teeth may be absent and their place taken by sheets of baleen or whalebone. When present they may be numerous and homodont, or less numerous and heterodont, or reduced to a single pair. The epiglottis and the arytenoids are prolonged and embraced by the soft palate so as to form a continuous tube for the passage of air from the nasal cavities to the trachea. The brain is large and the cerebral hemispheres are richly convoluted. The testes are abdominal, the teats are two, and are posterior in position. The uterus is two-horned, the placenta diffuse and non-deciduated. This definition is more comprehensive, but it still does not state all those features in which whales differ from other animals, which are not clearly connected with the need for a fish-like form, and life at times in great depths of the ocean. It seems possible to extract from what has been said here as essential characteristics of the group in the following facts of structure. In the skull, the separation of the two parietals by the intervention of the supraoctipical, or their concealment by its overlapping, the overlapping of the muzzle generally by the premaxillae, the loose attachment between various bones surrounding or connecting with the organ of hearing, the absence or feeble development of the coronary process of the lower jaw, in the forelimb and girdle, the absence of clavicle, the greater number of the radius and the ulna than the humerus, the frequent presence of the typical number of bones in the wrist, the long and simple lungs, the unlobulated liver and complex stomach, the extraordinary shortened but much convoluted brain. This combination of characters is found nowhere else among the mammals, and, indeed, the bulk of the peculiarities are confined to the whales. I might also perhaps have added some few others, this, and certainly more than a, one characteristic feature might have been included in the list, had I not limited myself to those which occur both in whalebone and in toothed whales, as there is some idea to the effect that the two great divisions of the Cetaceae have had a separate descent, even from unlike ancestors this had, however, better be deferred until after we have seen what can be done with the broader facts in settling the affinities of this highly puzzling group of creatures. It is to be feared that nothing can be done except, and that vaguely, to suggest an undulate-like ancestor. In them we have in some forms at least the ruminants, a highly complex stomach, and a rather simple liver. But there is really nothing else of first-rate importance to make the comparison stronger. As undoubted, whales occur back to the Eocene, 
they have possibly come off from earlier stock still, and Professor Albrecht has advanced and ingeniously supported the view that the cetacea are the nearest thing now existing to the necessary but unfortunately hypothetical promammalia, the race which has given rise to all mammals. His arguments will be partially gone into here, for at any rate they will give some color to a primitive ancestry of our whales, a result to which other considerations, chiefly the failure to tack them on, even with probability anywhere else, seem to drive us. Unfortunately, as a general rule, it is by no means easy to distinguish between simplicity which is in the effect of degeneration and simplicity which, which may be fairly interpreted. As a retention of earlier and simpler conditions of structure, sometimes it is to be obvious enough to which category to refer an apparently primitive state of affairs in an organ. For example, while everyone admits nowadays that the amphibia are close to the fishes, no one would probably suggest that the total absence of lungs in certain salamanders is due to the final disappearance of the air bladder of the fish-like ancestor, whose disappearance is commencing to be indicated by the loss of a connection with the esophagus and many fishes. It is a question of simplicity and degeneration within the tribe of newts themselves, and when Professor Albrecht alleges the absence, of a sacrum in the ventral column as a primitive character, it seems impossible to accept his view and to do otherwise than regard his simplification of the ventral column as due to the dwindling hind legs, and to the consequent absence of any need for strong support from the vertebral column. Again, whales have not only not an external ear in the adult conditions, but also no ear muscles, which are so highly developed in terrestrial mammals with mobile ears. In criticizing Professor Albrecht's statements and suggestions, Professor Max Weber points out that sometime since Professor Howes showed in the photal porpoise rudiments of external ears and of muscle, which can hardly be regarded as a beginning of these structures, so essential to an ear which plays an important part in the life of terrestrial mammals, for they are not only found in the embryo, if commencing structures they should be more apparent in the adult. Vestiges, remains of former structures, indicate their earlier existence by appearing for a brief time during development and then fading away as maturity is reached. Some other features in the organization of cetacea may perhaps be interpretive as really primitive. Among the whalebone whales, the two halves of the lower jaw are not only united by what is termed syndesmosis, a weak union by ligament than the strong bony union, and clisolis, which is prevalent in mammals generally. It may be urged, however, to do with the mode in which rorquals and right whales feet. The capacity for taking in enormous gulps of water containing the minute animals upon which the majority of these whales feed should be advantaged by a distensibility of the mouth and consequent increase of the mouth cavity. Of more importance in connection with the anatomy of the lower jaw is the discovery by Professor Albrecht of a separate superangular bone. It is a distinguishing feature of the mammals as contrasted with the reptiles lying beneath them in the series, that the lower jaw is almost entirely formed of dentary bone alone, a small chin bone sometimes occurring also. Now in reptiles, a large number of separate elements enter into its formation, so that at the occasional occurrence in Balloptera sibaldi of the superangular is so far an archaic feature. So too, possibly, is the marked separation of the sternum into two hemisterna. This is particularly apparent in the coccolot and in the siphoids. 
Now the sternum is developed from the ends of the ribs on both sides, and in the embryo it is always double. Later the fusion of the two halves takes place, and the apparently median sternum arises. In lower vertebrates the double connection often survives. That there is often a seventh cervical rib in whales is a remnant of a former state of affairs, for in reptiles there are a series of ribs depending from the neck vertebrae. But after all such an additional rib has been often met with in other mammals, Professor Albrecht points out that the cetacean resemble the fish and that the occipital bone joins the frontal. It is no doubt, as has already been pointed out, a very curious fact in their anatomy, but one not easily susceptible of an explanation. But to liken them to fishes for this reason seems to prove too much. For what we want on the promammalian theory is rather a likeness with lowly organized reptiles. It cannot, of course, be seriously maintained, as Professor Albert would have us believe, that the dorsal fin is an inheritance from a fish. Dr. Murray's comparison of it from to the hump of a camel is far better. Professor Weber has just dwelt upon the excessive complicated brain, and upon the mode of the attachment of the fetus to its mother, in support of the more orthodox view that the whales are not primitive mammalia at all. If we are to place them in this position, we must displace monotreous mammals, ornithorhynchus and echinda, whose organization in so many points places them unquestionably at the base of existing mammals. The general conclusion which best suits the facts at our disposal seems to be to look upon the Cetaceae as an offshoot of an early group of the higher mammalia. This is unsatisfactory in its vagueness, no doubt, but it is difficult to see what more can be said which is not entirely speculative and devoid of foundation in ascertained fact. Having then attempted, and it must be, candidly confessed, failed, to place the whales accurately in the system, it remains to arrange them with reference to each other. It is easier to do this than to solve the first problem. There is, however, an initial difficulty and in the great superficial likeness which the various members of the whale tribe bear to each other. It needs no argument to prove that the mammalia are essentially a land race other than those which have already been advanced. To inhibit the water is a mode of life entirely foreign to their organization. It is perhaps this which, in part at least, accounts for the uniformity of structure which the large group of whales exhibit. So little divergence from the suitable structure would be just the fatal straw. We find as a support of this way of looking at the matter, similar uniformities in groups which inhabit are usually medium. The groups of birds, for example, which contain as enormously large number of different species, and is yet characterized by so great a uniformity of organization that the task of classifying them has proved insuperable, is an example of a race which has probably been modified to the aerial life from a life among the branches of the trees. Here again, a certain organization is needed to live that life, and wide departures from the most fitting style of structure are not to be seen. A slight structural divergence might easily prove fatal to the perfect fulfillment of their functions as flying animals. Everyone is agreed that the orders of birds are separated from each other by characters of far less importance than those which separate many, if not all, of the orders of purely terrestrial mammalia. The Cetaceae, it is true, form but one group equivalent to Ungulata, Thrudentia, etc., but it would seem that they are more alike one genus with another, an external build and internal conformation, than are either two groups sided. 
There are, for example, larger differences in the organs of digestion among the rodents and ungulates than are met with in the whales. The variability of external form it is hardly necessary to dwell upon. The teeth differ much more from one rodent genus to another, or from one ungulate genus to another, than in the whales, generally speaking. Fish, on the other hand, are born and bred to the aquatic life, shown just as many, if not more, divergences of structure as do the mammals. The expression fish-like is, it is true, often used to describe a certain shape. But what would be more utterly different in shape than a skate and an eel, or a sunfish and a sole? Here we have the precise converse of the case afforded by whales, the whole organization being fitted into the marine or freshwater life. There is ample room for much variation without affecting the necessary essentials. Bearing in mind, then, the profound influence which the aquatic life seems to have had in molding the external as well as the internal form of whales, it is not surprising that several naturalists have arrived at the conclusion that those structural differences which do exist argue the justice of dividing the group into two great orders, the toothed and the whalebone whales, which have arisen from separate ancestors and have only come to resemble each other in various details owing to convergence, i.e. the likeness is superficial and due to similar conditions, not similar descent. This convergence is not an uncommon fact in nature. Such likenesses, as there are between the seals and whales, and between the manatees and the whales, are examples. Flying rodents and flying marmosupials exhibit another instance of the same phenomenon. In technical zoological parlance, then, by those who believe the whales to be two groups originally distinct from each other, which have come to lie side by side, they would be spoken of as diphyletic that there do not appear to be any annectant forms between the toothed and the whalebone whales, is so far in favor of this view. But much more than is necessary to lend even a color of probability to the suggestion. It is perfectly true that the two great divisions of the Mystocosite and the Odontocite are, as will be seen from the definitions which follow, separated from each other by exceedingly trenchant characters. So, for the matter of that, are the Archaeocite from both. But what appears fatal to us is the idea of a double origin as the exact correspondence in certain structures, which, so to speak, need not necessarily have been the same. Among these, the peculiar form of the scalpula stands preeminent. It is only in whales, and it is in all whales, that this shape of scalpula is met with. End of section 9.